Amen, and good morning. Um, I like that phrase, new normal. That is kind of what we're all looking for right now. I will tell you this, and I want you to hear this. We miss you. Like, this is not the same, right? This is, this is very different, and it's easy sometimes to just focus on, gosh, so much has changed all of a sudden. Uh, but we're also really trying to lean into some of the new. And there's a lot of like new stuff that we're experimenting with. Our staff has been working hard this week just to figure out, hey, how do we do this? How do we stay connected? Um, and apparently they thought it was a good idea for me to join the worship team. So I've never gotten to do that before. I'm excited about that. They did not let me turn on my mic until right now, though. So, yeah, we're all disappointed. But maybe next week. Uh, we're just leaning into it. And we miss seeing you all. Uh, we're, you know, trying to preach to an empty room is not the same. I'm going to assume uh, at home you're laughing at 100% of my jokes, um, but we're leaning into it, so we're glad you're joining us. Um, if, if you haven't been with us at Pulpit Rock, we've been walking through the book of Mark, and it's been the better part of a year, and we're finally to the last week of Jesus' life. This is called Holy Week, and we're kind of walking day by day through this last week. And today we're going to look at, and I'm so glad we are, what I think is one of the most beautiful stories in all the Gospels. It's in Mark 14. I'll give you some time to find that in your Bible. And it is uh, one of those pictures that is so uh, just stunning and in a sense breathtaking that it, it, it might just be perfect for a time like this. So find Mark chapter 14. It reminds me of something I read once. One of my favorite theologians, uh, he compares the study of God to the study of lips. That was kind of the comparison that he made, the study of lips. Uh, he said, science, medicine, they've taught us all sorts of things about our lips. Now, don't touch your lips because we're not supposed to do that. But uh, if we could, we would discover that our lips are kind of a unique part of our body. They are only apparently five to six cellular layers deep, which I didn't know that. The rest of your skin is like 15 or 16 cellular layers. Or for instance, you may not know this, your lips don't have sweat glands in them. I didn't know that. That's, that's why they get chapped, um, because they're not like the rest of the skin on, on your body. So there's all this stuff, like these fascinating facts that we can learn about why God gave us lips. And then there is the moment when someone kisses you good and hard, right? And suddenly you understand on a whole nother level why God gave you lips. And the theologian uh, points this out, and I love this illustration. My wife is laughing at me, but I love it. Uh, the scientist knows something about lips, but the person who has been kissed has had an encounter with the subject that they will not soon get over. I mean, come on, that's pretty, that's the best thing I have all morning. Um, I, it's such a good illustration that he compares it, of course, to our knowledge of God. It's one thing to know facts about God. It's one thing to study doctrines and theology and to understand who God is or what God is like. It is a totally different thing to have an encounter with God and to have an encounter with God that you will not soon get over. We're at a point in the book of Mark where Jesus, he's done a lot of stuff, and a lot of people are trying to figure him out. 
And it's this moment where a lot of people are forming different opinions about Jesus. But Jesus is not a subject to study. He's actually a God to encounter. And there's this one person in the midst of this story who is clearly had and she has an encounter with Jesus that she cannot get over. And she's not just interested in the facts about him. She's not interested in the question about is he the Messiah or isn't he the Messiah. She is someone who has just encountered God. And we see it in the way that she relates to him. And she becomes one of the heroes of the book of Mark. And she's someone, honestly, that I think we should emulate. And as you're sitting there in your home right now, I know this is true in your heart. This is absolutely true in my heart. I would hate to be the sort of person who knows facts about God, but never really encounters him like this woman does in the book of Mark. So this story, I think it'll serve us. It'll illustrate the difference between a textbook knowledge of God and a real encounter. And today I just want us to ponder this question. Have we really encountered this Jesus? Do we just know some facts about him or have we really encountered him? And I think the way that we can know that, the thing that, uh, that maybe we see in this woman's life, that I'll tell you up front, uh, it, it just it is so obvious from the way she interacts with Jesus, is this truth. Your view of yourself is the greatest commentary about your view of God. And when you truly have encountered him, one of the first things that will change is the way that you view yourself. We can know a lot of facts about God, and that never really changes the way that we see ourselves or the way we view ourselves. But when we encounter his love, when we encounter his holiness, when we uh, see his redemption in our lives, we will never see ourselves the same again. That's why our view of ourself is so often the greatest commentary for our view of God. And Mark's going to tell us this beautiful story, and it's going to focus us on this woman who encounters Jesus. And what we're going to see is what she believes about Jesus as it's demonstrated through how she views herself. So it's a beautiful story, Mark 14. We're going to get to that story, but like Mark does, he sandwiches stories between other stories. So he's going to sandwich the story between a story of hatred and betrayal with Jesus. But Mark 14, we're going to start in verse 1. Mark writes this. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus and secretly kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So here's the hatred. This is the first part of the story. The, the religious establishment, they've had enough of Jesus. As much as they hate him, they also have some fear of him because everyone is really interested in Jesus. And so they fear that popularity. Now, the backdrop for this week is the Passover festival. This is what's called a pilgrim's feast. So what that means is that everyone who would uh, observe this festival would travel to Jerusalem and observe it. And they say that in these days, Jerusalem was probably about a population of 50 or so. But during Passover, everyone would travel to the temple and the population of Jerusalem would swell by like 200,000. I mean, you think we're having a hard time with social distance. I mean, there were, this was a lot of people in a small space, and there was a lot of tension. And in the middle of that, Jesus is the talk of the town. 
like everyone heard about what he did in the temple, what, you know, driving out the money changers. People had heard about miracles that he had done. People had heard some of the things that he is teaching, and everyone is watching him. And this makes all these religious leaders incredibly nervous because they're, uh, people are trying to figure out what to do, and they want to arrest him, but they can't because he is so popular. Now, I want you to think just for a second about the heart of Jesus in this moment. Like, everyone's watching him, but very few people really know him. Very few people have really encountered him. Most of the people who are watching him are, are relating to him based on what they want him to be, or what they fear him to be, or what they're hoping he could be. But nobody really knows him. And I think there's this moment of like profound loneliness that our Savior felt. Because while everyone was looking at him, nobody really saw him. It was like the loneliness that must come from fame. When just everyone relates to you as like, like the image that you project and uh, they're interested in what you could do for them. It's lonely. And it's into that moment where Jesus is being analyzed by everyone, where it's incredibly intense, that this beautiful story happens. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. John tells us that this woman is actually Mary Magdalene. Um, what a stunning moment this must have been. Jesus, who's called the anointed one. Here he is anointed by uh, an old friend of his, Mary. She brings this expensive perfume in the room. This would have been, like for her, like an heirloom given to her by her parents, most likely for her wedding night. Uh, so this is like a, a prized possession. And she walks in and she breaks the jar um, and she pours out everything. It's not like she can just screw the lid on and save some for later. No, she holds nothing back from Jesus. And this is an intimate act. This is, there's a, a degree of scandal to this act. This is a beautiful act. And I think there's a lot we can learn from it. Like, first, just like, I want you to imagine the courage that it took. Here's Jesus reclining at the table, you know, probably surrounded by mostly men, talking about whatever men talk about. And into this room full of men walks Mary, and she interrupts everything with this scandalous act of worship. That took some courage, right? Like, sometimes when we're worshiping, um, I'll be honest, like sometimes I don't even clap because my rhythm's not real good and I'm worried that people are going to make fun of me sometimes because you get self-conscious. Uh, Mary has zero self-consciousness. Like she's all courage in this moment and she's holding nothing back from Jesus. There's also an aspect of this that is uh, uh, full of faith. Like she believes that Jesus is the Messiah. She gets it. And this is this is like her declaration of belief that he is who he said he is. Remember that question Jesus asked Peter? We've been pondering it for weeks now. Who do you say that I am? Like the disciples are wrestling with this. The crowds are wrestling with this. The teachers of the law, they're wrestling with this. They're, everyone is struggling with that question. Mary is not. Her answer is definitive. And she's making a statement in front of everyone that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. This is not some intellectual statement. This is not a fact that she read somewhere in a book. 
This is not a hope. She's had an encounter, and she believes this man is God, and she will not soon get over that. Her actions are demonstrating her theology. This is also something worth pointing out. Uh, like, isn't it obvious in the story that Mary is not really worried about doing the wrong thing? Like, she's not worried about making a mistake. Like, if she was, she would have never done this. This is an act that breaks, like, all the rules of good and polite society. Like, she's just not concerned about it. She, she may have felt that fear. She may have been worried that people would be disappointed with her or disapprove of her. But what was bigger than all that stuff was just the love that she had for Jesus. And I think what that really illustrates is how she viewed herself in relationship to him. Like she has this incredible confidence that he of all people would receive her. She didn't fear that he's going to be upset or that he's going to be embarrassed by what she does. He didn't fear that she, he's going to be disinterested. Like she's an annoyance to him or disapproving. Like you, you never should have done something like that. It seems like what she thinks is that she's safe with Jesus. She thinks that he enjoys her devotion to him. That, that he has space for her is what she believes. You know, if it's true that your view of yourself is your greatest commentary on your view of God, uh, then I would say that what Mary believes, what she's demonstrating by how she views herself, is that Jesus is in fact God, and he can be trusted. That's what her life is demonstrating there. And it, it, I mean, just it, it is a, a stunningly beautiful moment of worship. I want you to just picture Jesus there, like picture him, like he's enjoying this. Like he is just receiving this from her. He sees it for what it is. And like, like you could just see our Savior there enjoying the worship of one of the few people on earth who really understood who he was. He knows he's about to be crucified. He told the disciples they don't get it. They're confused about that. Nobody sees him except this woman does. And she does this beautiful act of anointing him for burial, preparing him for his death, uh, the hardest thing he would ever have to do. And it's stunning, it's risky, it's beautiful, it's good theology, it's all that stuff. But, as is often the case, uh, when you put yourself out there trying to do something beautiful in the world, what happens? There are always trolls who want to criticize what you do. And sure enough, that was true back in these days. Someone wants to critique it and evaluate it, and that's what happens in verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. So one time I was reading this book, right, and the author said something that to me like was just, uh, like I had to step away from the book. I had a moment because it was like this little tiny quote and it just so connected to where I was, like it just connected me to God's love for me and just like just really hit me and I was like, wow, this is beautiful. I even teared up a little bit, which I don't often do, but it was a big deal for me. And so um, I was like, this, gosh, this is a moment. So I decided, I thought it would be a good idea, to share that little quote that had so much meaning for me on the Facebook. <laughs> I don't know if, uh, 
I don't know if you know what the Facebook is. It's a cult that I used to belong to, but the Lord has freed me from that. I'm not on it anymore. But at the time, I was on Facebook, and I, I was like, this is so moving. I, like, I want to share it with the entire World Wide Webs. So I uh, get into the Facebook, and I you know, type out the quote, and I press post. What do you think happened? Well, you know what happened. Like, so most of the people are like, oh, that's very moving. And they liked it and they said nice things about it. But sure enough, there was a couple people who attacked the author of the quote because apparently this person had written something that they disagreed with somewhere else. And so they attacked the author of the quote. One person even attacked the idea that God was in fact this loving and kind of challenged this idea that God could love humans in the way that this quote described. I'm over it, <laughs> mostly. It sounds like I'm over it. I mean, I've, I, you know, years of therapy. But uh, it, that always happens, right? No matter what, when you put yourself out there, when you're trying to connect with God, when you're trying to live your life, engage with others, there is always someone waiting to criticize it. There's always someone waiting to rebuke you harshly. And it was true way back then. You know, the hallmark of religious people, and I think it just spiritually immature people in general, the hallmark is they really dislike other people's freedom with God. Like they're always worried that somebody's getting away with something, and so they're constantly on the lookout to just make sure that nobody gets away with anything. And I know this because like I, like when I'm struggling spiritually, I start to get critical in that same way. Like when I'm secure in God's love and I see someone else excited about their faith and like living it out there, putting themselves out there, I, I'm so excited and it just like really that, that brings joy to my heart. But when I'm unhealthy spiritually, I find myself starting to evaluate others a whole lot more. I find myself starting to resent the freedom that other people seem to have, like as if they've gotten away with something that I don't get, like God's letting them do something that he doesn't let me do. And I think that's what's actually happening in the story. The spiritually unhealthy people are worried that Mary has gotten away with something. But notice who's not worried, right? Jesus. God of the universe, he's not worried at all. He is just enjoying what she does. Spiritually unhealthy people are resenting it. Jesus is thoroughly enjoying it. Now, John will tell us in his gospel account that the person who actually had this objection was Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray Jesus. Um, and the context for his comment about selling it and giving the money to the poor is on the eve of Passover, religiously observant Jews would uh, give some gifts to the poor in their community. And so he's kind of making it about that. It's like, well, we could sell this, and then when Passover comes, we could give all that money to the poor like we're supposed to do. But listen, I, the bigger issue here is he's spiritually unhealthy, which is going to become really obvious in a few days when he betrays Jesus. But, but he's spiritually unhealthy, and so he's resenting the freedom and the extravagance with which this woman worships Jesus. He resents her confidence. He resents the relationship that she has with Jesus, so he rebukes her harshly. And I, I, you know, I think it's, it's sad to see, but I think it also is eye-opening to just recognize that sometimes that rebuke and that criticism is not the voice of God. The voice of God is Jesus just enjoying her. And in fact, Jesus gives us the voice of God in this next verse, verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. 
Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you'll not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me, uh, prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I love Jesus. I love how he defends her. Like he just says, back off. Just everybody just back off. Leave her alone. And then he goes a step further. He says, listen, from now to the end of time, when people hear my story, they're going to hear about her. And he gives her like this permanent place in his story. Now he says this thing about the poor. You know, I don't think he's being dismissive. I think he might be pointing out that you all have not been helping the poor. So don't act all defensive about uh, this money being wasted. But but I think what he's saying to us is really just, hey, we need to balance devotion and activism. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He's saying, listen, it is worthwhile to worship me and to just spend time worshiping me. It is also worthwhile to fight for the poor and to advance the kingdom and right the wrongs of the world. And I think he's just kind of throwing out that caution that we need to do both as his followers, but we shouldn't overlook the worship of Jesus. So a beautiful act of sacrificial love for the poor, that obviously honors God. We're called to that stuff. But so does a beautiful piece of art and the extravagance of artistic expression. That also honors God, and we're called to that too. God enjoys both of those things. And so you see Mary with this stunningly beautiful work of living art. And Jesus says, I'm enjoying this. Could you just leave her alone? Leave her alone. Let me enjoy this. Mark ends the story with this, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So Mark is showing us this is really the trigger moment for Judas. Obviously, This was not a decision made just because of this moment. There were other factors, but this was the breaking point for Judas. And I think that says a lot about Judas. This beautiful act of worship by Mary is what pushes him over the edge. And he concludes, well, Jesus isn't my Messiah. You know, I think there's a warning in that, um, maybe just for us to be careful. When we find ourselves in that headspace where we're starting to be really critical of others, critical of their spiritual lives. That, that kind of was the headspace Judas was in. Um, we, we start looking at our brothers and sisters uh, kind of to make sure they're not getting away with something, to make sure they're not doing anything that we're not doing. That should tell us that our heart is in a pretty bad place. But we need to be really cautious. We need to see that, that there's a brokenness in us that is creating that critical spirit. I, I don't know that God ever really is in our criticism of others. I think that that is something that we do for us. And when that becomes kind of the narrative of how we interact with other people, this critical spirit, there's something in that we've got to recognize. We're not healthy. We've got to heal something. So you see this picture, Mary, total courage, just this beautiful, extravagant love for Jesus. Jesus just enjoying the worship of this person who knows who he is. Judas resenting it. Mary becomes one of these heroes in the Gospel of Mark. She is embodying what it means to believe 
in Jesus, and it's not being able to list off all the facts. There's so much we can learn from her. I, I just, as I wrap up, I just want to remind you what I said at the beginning. Your view of yourself is the greatest commentary about your view of God. The way that you approach God, just like it was for Mary, that is going to reveal to everyone, yourself included, what you actually believe about God. And that's really important for us to realize because we've been now for months saying that the point of Mark's gospel is to get us to answer Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And while there's all sorts of characters trying to answer that, Mary is the one who actually answers it. She's had an encounter with Jesus, and she's never going to get over it. And that is revealed like her theology, her statement of faith, her beliefs are revealed by how she sees herself and how she approaches Jesus. And it's beautiful. So here's maybe the question that I want to ask us. How does the way you view yourself uh, or what does the way you view yourself reveal about your theology? What does the way you view yourself reveal about your theology? How, how does how you approach God explain to the world who God is? Worked with a pastor years ago, and uh, he said this. He said, there's, there's really three big approaches to God. And there's probably more, but generally three different ways that we approach God that reveal what we actually believe about him. It's not the, the answers that we would put on a test, but it's what we actually believe about God are revealed by these three different approaches. I just want to rattle these off and get us thinking about them because I think they help us understand what our real theology is. The first, he said, is that we tend to approach God sometimes with avoidance behaviors. And this is just generally where we, it's kind of, hey, I'm going to mind my own business. I hope God minds his own business. Let's just live and let live. There's a lot of ways that we do this, that we avoid God. One of the biggest in our culture, I think, honestly, is just by being busy. Like when we talk about being busy, we always talk about it like it just happened to us. Oh, I'm so busy. I don't know what to do. Um, busyness is a choice. And it's one of the ways that we choose to avoid God. I, I think similar to that, sometimes we avoid God just by being distracted. Like we are the most entertained and distracted culture in the world. And it, we can just say, well, you know, I just wanted to binge watch, you know, five seasons of The Office. But that is really a choice. And I think in that is a choice sometimes to avoid God. Sometimes it's just actual avoidance. Like we become very hidden and we'll uh, avoid God by just hiding from the sort of relationships, the sort of honesty that God usually inhabits. And we just don't make time for that in our lives. And so there's like all these different ways that we avoid God. And when avoidance behaviors are in our life, it, it, it says something about our theology. That they say that what we believe at our core is that God is a distant God. Or maybe he's just an uninvolved God. Or maybe he's just non-existent. And it doesn't matter what we say we believe about God. If we see avoidance behaviors in our lives, then what we really believe about God, the, the answer to our question, who do you say that I am, is I say you are a distant and an unloving God who doesn't care to know me. If we're avoiding him, that's what we're saying. That's what we believe. It doesn't matter what we think. That's what we believe. And it's revealed by the fact that we're acting as if we don't really matter to God. That's not Mary, right? Mary 
it doesn't avoid Jesus at all. She confronts Jesus, like confidently. She's going to be received by him. She knows he's not distant. She knows that this is going to matter to him, that he delights in knowing her. But sometimes we can avoid I think there's a second thing that we do that's also unhealthy. And, and that, these are just shame behaviors. It's when we approach God with shame, uh, behaviors that are motivated by this belief that the thing that God cares about the most is my behavior and my sin. That's really all he cares about. And I, we may not say that out loud, but I think practically a lot of us live this theology out every day. Like when we are insecure around God and we, like we don't just relate to him as if, hey, we have flaws and God is redeeming those flaws, but we relate to God as if, no, we are flaws. Like we are our flaws, we are our sins. Instead of thinking of ourselves as like these redeemed children of God, new creation of God, instead of that, we think of ourselves as like the bastard child of God who will never be a legitimate son or daughter. And it's motivated by this shame. Sometimes that shame uh, it doesn't drive us to insecurity. Maybe it drives us to moralism. We're, we're just keeping score, constantly checking boxes because we want to earn some sort of favor with God. Sometimes that shame leads us to pride. You know, we, we're working so hard to measure up. If we find someone who doesn't seem to be working as hard as we are, then we rebuke them harshly like Judas did. Or maybe we just keep it to ourselves, but we do that in our hearts. You know, I think what we saw in Judas in this story is the sort of pride that comes from a deep sense of shame. Like that, it, it's really revealed by what he hates. Like what does Judas hate in the story? He hates grace, he hates beauty, he hates expressiveness. He hates all those things that seem to come easily to Mary. They bother him. You know, it doesn't matter how much we know about God. It doesn't matter how many books we could write on theology. If we see shame in our life, what that reveals about our true theology, that, that question, who do you say I am, our true theology is I say you are an always disappointed God who will not give grace. And that fact is revealed by the fact that we're living as if God's never going to be satisfied with us. We're never enough. You know, this, this also, that's not Mary, right? That's, she is shameless. That's what I love about the story. Just shameless in this moment, not worried at all. And I think it shows this, that her theology of grace is really good, like incredibly good. And uh, so there's like these avoidance behaviors, there are these shame behaviors, and then there's this last thing, and this is what we see in Mary. I'm going to just call it beloved behaviors. These are the sort of behaviors that we do when we really believe that God loves us, that he's for us, that his anger is satisfied and all he has in his hands, all he has left for us is grace. Beloved behaviors are confident, not confident because we think we're so great, but they're confident because we trust that Jesus will defend us, just like he defended Mary to these guys. He's going to defend us in the same way. Be beloved behaviors are going to be expressive because we're trying to wrap our head around just the joy and the gratitude that we have because God receives us as we are. I know we've seen this. There is like this special beauty when somebody lives as if they're loved by God. And that's what Mary's doing here. People like Mary, 
It doesn't matter what they, what they believe on the test. It doesn't matter what their doctrine is. They have great theology because at their core, they believe that they're loved by God. Not, not that they've studied so much, but they've encountered this God that they will never get over. And he, they are convinced that they're loved. The answer to their question, who do you say I am, is you are the God who loves me. It's the truest thing. That you are full of grace. You are full of truth. You are full of redemption for me. So, if your view of yourself is the greatest commentary about your view of God, I guess, like, I just want us to ponder today, what does our view of ourselves teach about who God is? Like, if someone only looked at how we view ourselves, what would they believe about this God that we say we follow? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Um, it's lived out in a lot of ways by how we approach him and by how we view ourselves. One of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, he writes this, and I think it, he is writing this about you. He's writing this about me. He says this, God says, you are my beloved. I'm not going to ask you any questions. Wherever you have gone, Whatever you have done, whatever people say about you, you are my beloved. I hold you safe in my embrace. I touch you. I hold you safe under my wings. You can come home to me whose name is compassionate, whose name is love. He goes on to say this. If you keep that in mind, you can deal with an enormous amount of success as well as an enormous amount of failure without losing your identity because your identity is that you are the beloved. And long before your father and mother, your brothers, your sisters, your teachers, your church, or anyone else touched you in a loving as well as a wounding way, long before you were rejected by some person, praised by somebody else, that voice has always been there saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That love is there before you were born, and it will be there after you die. You know, I think this is what Mary knew about herself. This is what makes this such a stunning story. This is what she knew about Jesus. This is what led to this act of extravagant and scandalous beauty reveals this heart that believes Jesus is the Messiah full of love and full of grace for her. And that's where I want to end today. I mean, this, this is a crazy season, right? Um, none of us know kind of where it's going or, or, or what, what's going to happen. Um, but let's just start with one of the most foundational theological statements we could make. Jesus enjoys you. That is the truth. Jesus enjoys you. Just as you are, he enjoys you. As much as he enjoyed Mary, he enjoys you. He is not distant. He is not constantly disappointed or angry. He enjoys you and he loves you. In this season, you know, wherever we are in our homes, whatever we're doing, you know, it it would be a great season to just try to encounter the God who enjoys us. 
and to encounter him in a way that we would not soon get over. I'm praying for y'all a lot, and uh, that's what I'm praying, is that during the season that God would affirm this simple true theology that you are enjoyed by Jesus. Let me pray that over you right now. Lord, I'm thankful for my friends. Um, I'm thankful just this, for this community of faith. We acknowledge that we are connected in some way, mysterious to us, but very real, even when we're not gathered. Lord, I pray for us that this would be a week where we come face to face with you as you are, God, not as a subject to be studied, but the person of Jesus who enjoys us and who loves us. And I pray that this season that's so crazy would be a season where we are no longer able to dodge the fact that there is a God who loves us. And we need to encounter him. We trust you. We put our faith in you, God. And we trust that you know how all this is going to end. You've been there. You're outside of time. And outside of time, you've said, I love you with an everlasting love. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.
glad that you tuned in um, uh, with us, and uh, we're thankful for that. I want to just remind you, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 5 p.m., uh, actually, myself and Becky, my wife, uh, we're going to be doing what we're calling whole care community check-ins. There's a lot of bad news. I know it's overwhelming right now. We just want 10 minutes to say something encouraging, positive, and to, to connect us a little bit more as a church. We have so many really cool things that we want to experiment with with those uh, coming up, and we're going to just do that for the duration until things get back to normal. We're going to do that every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, Tuesday is going to be for uh, kids. Wednesday is going to be for students, and then we're going to gather back uh, virtually here on Sunday. So hope you'll be able to connect with those a little bit uh, over these next few days and weeks. Um, here's what I want you to just think about as we go. God has said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. His love for you was there before you were born, and it will be there after you die. And what I pray for us, as I pray for us every day, is just this. May you encounter the love of Jesus in a way that you will never get over. And may it change forever how you view yourself that you are the beloved of God. We'll see you tomorrow.